Well, if you're relatively new to us or if this is your first time visiting, I want to welcome you and welcome you back. Whenever there are five Sundays in a calendar month, which is three or four times a year, I take questions uh, from the congregation that are submitted in advance and uh, give answers to those questions. At our church, we practice what is called expository preaching, which is more or less just a fancy word for verse-by-verse preaching. We believe that because of God's Word and the need to be clear with it, we preach verse by verse, if not word by word, so that we can go deeper. However, uh, when we do that, there may be a topic or an issue going on in your life that we may not cover for months, uh, if not years, based on how we preach. And so uh, these Q&As are, in a way, sort of a release valve. If you have any questions uh, for me, that maybe you can't find on your own or can't get the answer from other believers, Uh, they are submitted. This time around, I got uh, less questions than I have in the past few Q&As, but that just gives me an opportunity to answer perhaps a little more thoroughly in the sense of giving a little more background. So let's jump in. The first question is, do you think it is problematic for Christians to go to gyms restaurants, movie theaters, etc., after church on Sundays, since it encourages people to work on Sundays unnecessarily? I think this question is a good one. I appreciate it because it indicates a desire to observe a day for the Lord, which is on Sundays. The question then is, for those who are Christians, or I'm guessing non-Christians who have to work on Sundays, is this wrong for us to promote those types of businesses. I think it's important to understand where we get that view of Sabbath rest, to not work on Sundays or to not have uh, anything going on on Sundays, uh, and how that is distinct from a Christian day of worship, because the Sabbath and the Christian day of worship, let's call it Sundays or Sunday mornings, are two very different things. The Sabbath in the Scriptures never changed. It is still to be held by Jews. It was commanded for Jews, never for Christians. The Sabbath, okay? Contrary to popular belief, the Sabbath as we know it was not given at creation. We will see next week or the following week that Paul appeals to creation as a way to uh, command something that is to happen continuously. And when you go back to creation, then you have more of a precedent that goes throughout the ages. However, the Sabbath was not instituted at creation. In Genesis 2, in the creation account, the principle of rest was, and that's very important, tuck that away in your minds. The Sabbath was based on the rest that God exemplified for us and desires for us. There is a clear theology of rest in the Scriptures that God desires for us in that He rested on the seventh day in the six days of creation. The Sabbath, the idea that God's people are commanded to take a day off and to rest, is not brought up until Exodus chapter 16. And that was uh, when there was manna from heaven, Remember that miraculous bread-like substance that God used to nourish and sustain the Israelites and their wandering in the wilderness? And it was miraculous not just in how it appeared, but also he commanded them, don't be greedy. 
Only take what you and your family need for that day. There's also a principle of work there, to work every day to go out and get the manna. And the reason that was miraculous is because if they left it overnight, it would spoil and it would be clearly uh, inedible. Except on the sixth day, they were to collect for two days and that miraculously did not spoil overnight, but would spoil on the second night because they were not to work on the now instituted Sabbath, okay? So you see that principle even in God, how he miraculously appeared. There's not a single molecule of that manna would last overnight except the day before the Sabbath so that they could eat for two days and not have to work on the Sabbath. Then, of course, it is repeated later in the Ten Commandments, thus figuratively and literally written in stone, the Sabbath for the Jews. And if you want to learn more about the regulations of the Sabbath for the Jews, go to Exodus 31. Uh, We don't have time for that this morning. The Sabbath, in that sense, is never commanded to New Testament believers. We are no longer under law. We are not bound by the Ten Commandments as the Ten Commandments. We are bound by any of the Ten Commandments that are repeated in the New Testament. Because the Ten Commandments were part of a larger body of work known as the law, the Mosaic law. So if you're going to say we have to obey the Ten Commandments, then you have to obey all of the dietary and purification and cleanliness laws that are in the Old Testament. Okay? The, the Jews were not just commanded to follow those ten. Now, where is the Sabbath mentioned in the New Testament? It's actually only mentioned in narratives, in descriptions of Christians in the early church evangelizing Jews, or it is actually used in a negative sense. Let me read for you Colossians 2, 16 and 17. It says, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are mere And so talking about the Sabbath and all those festivals and things for the the Jews had, these are things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now that we have Christ, we are not bound by those things. He was the fulfillment of those laws, of the law. So why do we meet on a Sunday morning then? Because a Sabbath is technically last night, last evening, Saturday evening, really Tradition, it's the pattern of the early church. In Acts, we read that they met on the first day of the week. It's not commanded to meet on the first day of the week. We just follow the pattern. They did that in honor of the day Christ rose from the dead, which was our Sunday. Now, I mentioned this earlier. All of the Ten Commandments, of of the Ten Commandments, only nine are repeated in the New Testament and thus applicable to Christians. The one that is not repeated is honor the Sabbath. Now, when the Sabbath was given to Israel, it was not just so that they could get physical rest. That was part of it. But it was so that they would not work, so that they would set aside a complete day to celebrate their creator and creation. Because that day of rest reminded them of creation and, of course, the power and sustenance of God. In the same way, we can do that any day, 
And a lot of that understanding of worshiping and everything you do comes in the New Testament. We can always look back at what God has done to worship Him for His power. Um, so the Sabbath day, as we understand it from the Old Testament, is not for us. However, there is still a principle and a theology of rest. The fact that God created our bodies to need a third give or take a third of the 24-hour day cycle to sleep and rejuvenate shows that. And so if we are not to hold to the Sabbath, why do we do this? Because of Hebrews 10, other passages too, the pattern of Acts, but Hebrews 10 verses 23 through 25, the literal Sabbath is not commanded for us but assembling as believers, and especially our attitude towards that, is commanded. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25, and I'll read that for you. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You understand this. Iron sharpening iron. The church is here to promote greater spirituality and holiness within one another, not just so that we're not lonely or that we have company. And then here it is, verse 25. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And the key there is verses 24 and 25, to not forsake our own assembling together. As you know, with many of the commands and prohibitions in the New Testament, we're talking about a continuous pattern. The word is not, he doesn't say don't skip church, he says don't forsake. So there's a conscious decision, I am not going to be with God's people. Now, going back to the original question about whether it's wrong to go and do things which would require other people to be working on a Sunday. Well, if the Sabbath is not for believers, then it's definitely not for unbelievers. And we cannot expect unbelievers to behave like believers morally or even uh, financially or in regards to their work. However, Hebrews 10 makes it very clear that as it, when it comes to church, we are to prioritize the gathering of the saints. I got to tell you this, I had a proud dad moment this past week. And it is because as I preach to you right now, my oldest son's soccer team is in their championship tournament. And he said, Daddy, I'm not going to go to that game. And this is despite the fact that he scored in this tournament his first goal ever yesterday. And I said, why? And he said, because church is more important. And this is what the scriptures say. And it's not a legalistic, we just need to go. It is a love for a family. It's a need to be with God's people. It is living out there so much in the world that hates you because it hates your God that we have to be here to be refreshed. Yes, I can sing at home. Yes, I can watch a sermon online, but it's not the same. In a 
few weeks from here, why don't you just go order a turkey dinner and go eat it by yourself while your family is across the bay? It's not the same, right? There's a refreshment there. So Hebrews 10 does not apply to unbelievers, and there's no harm in them working on Sundays. Uh, there's not, it is not uh, even necessarily sin for you to work on a Sunday. So although we aren't called to honor the Sabbath, we do honor the principle that the Sabbath is based on, which is rest. God rested on the seventh day. And then we look at the, the pattern of and the command to be with God's people on and assembling together. There's a lot of debate. Does that mean every small group, every hangout? Well, for sure we know it means church, right? Because that's the clear assembling of believers. And I want to encourage you that this pattern is more than just a two-hour service on Sundays for believers. I would encourage you to not just make church a two-hour block of on Sunday, and then the rest of your day is just full, filled with secular errands and activities, rest. You need it. Spend quality time with your family. Spend quality time with your church family and uh, honor the pattern and the commands for church. Okay? Question number two. If our loved ones have passed and weren't Christians... Do they reach out to us in dreams and presenting to us through nature, sound, smell, inertia, etc.? This is a clearly a very a personal question uh, for someone, and it is a difficult concept, obviously, to have lost a loved one and longing to still be with them or at least have some sort of presence with them. The answer to this question, uh, the answer to this question applies to both believers and unbelievers who have passed. So the question refers to unbelievers. What I'm about to say is true of all people who have died. When someone dies, their spirit, the spiritual part of them, their physical part stays here but the spiritual part of them instantly goes to the afterlife, which means one of two options, heaven or hell. There are no other options. Now, there are those that are spiritual. There are spiritual beings in this world, but they are not the spirits of humans who have died. They're angels or demons. Now, demons, as you know, were created as angels, and then they fell, and now they are fallen angels. I also want to be clear that despite what some people teach, when people die, whether they're Christians or really good people, they don't become angels. It's a completely separate being. Humans do not become angels, okay? They're separate things. And so, in that afterlife, wherever that person's spirit is, there is no way back. There's no way to talk to us. There's no way to reach out to us. There's no way that we feel them outside of personal memories, uh, which can be good, which can be strong. And you say, well, what about um, psychics or spiritists who seem to be able to conjure up the dead 
and we feel them, we talk to them, they talk to us. Well, when you look at Deuteronomy 18, we see how God feels about those who practice these things. Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 through 12, says, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. This would be human sacrifice. One who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. So those people who are claiming that they can speak to the dead on your behalf, God puts them in the same category as those who murder their own children to a false god. Okay? Keep that in mind. As believers, we must hope in Christ, not in dead, in the dead. And you know there are many religions that worship the dead. They worship uh, uh, ancestors. In a couple days here, we're coming upon a day where there is a, a, entire cultures that celebrate the day of the dead. And we need to be careful of that because it's just not real. We are to worship Christ and put our hope in Christ. And here's something to keep in mind. No matter who you are, if you long enough to communicate with the dead, there are those who are more than happy to deceive you, to take your money, and outside of this sphere, to deceive you in the form of your loved ones, and those are demons. People ask me, do I believe in ghosts? Yes, I do, but not how you define them. They're not the undead or the spirits of dead people. They are demons taking the form, the voices, the memories, whatever, of our loved ones to deceive us. Those are demons. Those are not the spirits of the dead. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 14 through 15 says, For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. We love our loved ones. There's a longing for them. It's good to remember them. It's good to have memories within reason. But I want to encourage you not to underestimate the power of memories that can become so real to us. I, I have many, uh, not many, but several friends and even relatives who believe their uh, dead husband is speaking to them or they see them or they appear to them. And I think there is a clear desire there, but we got to be careful where we put our hope and our longings. Do not underestimate the power of things like taste or smell. We've all done that, right? You smell something and all of a sudden you're back on your trip to Europe or you're back in that place where you grew up or whatever it is. There is power in that and it's testament to the power of God's creative ability in the human body. But those things do not mean that someone 
is with us. So relish those things, put your hope in Christ, but relish those things appropriately, and as much as you hope and wish that it is true, you have to stick with what the Scriptures clearly say, and that they are somewhere, and no part of them, or no ability, no voice, nothing can come back and communicate with us in any way, shape, or form. Okay? Question number three. Very timely, should Christians celebrate Halloween? I'm doing this on purpose to make you uncomfortable. <laughs> Some of you have spent a lot of money on candy and costumes, and you're really hoping I don't say no. Well, question number four. Now, okay, should Christians celebrate Halloween? Now, this is actually a big debate. There are many Christians uh, who debate and think that uh, themselves and other Christians should not celebrate Halloween. This is for a variety of reasons. Some because of the pagan roots of the day, uh, and some just by looking around and seeing. Uh, just last night, we, my family and I went to a house that was very uh, decorated for Halloween, uh, and right there, of course, prominently displayed was the number 666, you know, things like that. And so people say, we shouldn't have anything to do with that kind of thing because there's a lot of... Uh, gross stuff, demonic stuff, things like that. Well, when it comes to the pagan origins of Halloween, there actually is difficulty tracing exactly what the pagan origin is. There are many different options and possibilities, and it's quite possible all of those contributed to what Halloween is today, especially here in the West. Uh, I do not believe that something having a pagan origin is necessarily a reason Christians do not celebrate something. When it comes to things with pagan origins, often the pagan aspect of it is no longer part of the event. For example, Valentine's Day, pagan origins. Yoga, pagan origins. Even the fact that your bridesmaids all wore a matching color, pagan origins. Okay? Not to mention probably half a dozen other parts of your wedding ceremony if you had a traditional American Christian wedding ceremony. All pagan. To deceive demons. That's what it was. So that the demons wouldn't know who the bride is and corrupt her on her wedding day. And so the bridesmaids actually used to always all wear the same dress as the bride. And now that's changed, but the bridesmaids all wear the same dress and not the same color again still pagan origins, right? And so we need to be careful with that because pretty much everything, including many Christmas traditions that we have, pagan origins. Uh, I know believers. I know believers in this church who do not celebrate Christmas uh, because of how many pagan influences are in things like, well, just all the decorations and a lot of the symbolism, okay? To be fair... A lot of the gross, macabre, cultic traditions that led to Halloween are still seen in Halloween. The decorations, uh, the, the masks, there was, you know, I talked about there's a lot of influences that made Halloween what it is today. Uh, there's a lot of belief in ghosts and witches that uh, 
in the past that contributed to it today, which is why ghosts and witches are symbolic of Halloween, right? Your kid may dress up as Pokemon, but Halloween is known. That, you know, you don't have people decorating their houses or Target or whatever with hanging Pokemon. It's hanging witches' hats and witches' cauldrons, right? And then there was a huge influence by Haitian and African voodoo beliefs, and that's where we get the black cats and the witchcraft, okay? Today, for the most part, Halloween is more of a commercialized fun event for kids. Some churches, some of you are going to them this afternoon, some of you went them yesterday, even do something like a harvest festival, right, where they have safe candy, they still give out candy, they still encourage the kids to dress up, the pastor is dressed up, the staff is dressed up, there's bounce houses that are probably in the shape of a pumpkin, things like that, right? But it's just more of a Christian thing to do. Now, there's nothing inherently evil about dressing up as a princess or a cowboy or a Pokemon. There's nothing evil about going around the neighborhood asking for, as my kids put it, free candy, okay? Um, so is there anything inherently wrong with celebrating Halloween? No. Is it wrong for you to say, as a Christian, I choose not to celebrate Halloween? Absolutely nothing wrong with that either. But I want to give you some principles as you think through Halloween, whether you think it's wrong for Christians to celebrate it or whether you're all in on Halloween. Here are some principles. You're going to laugh at the first one, but it needs to be said, number one, don't worship Satan or practice witchcraft. Okay? And I'm not just saying you don't fall into this, right? Oh, I, I bought a witch's costume, now I'm practicing witchcraft. That's not what I'm talking about. Do not actively somehow extol. Remember what worship is. It's extolling something. So don't extol witchcraft, voodoo, all those things that God does not like. We need to be careful that we do not promote, promote occultism or demons as something that is fun or cute. Or let's be honest, if you look at the uh, costumes today, sexy, Right? It's sexy to dress up as, a, as a, a, a devil or something like that. We should not glorify or extol things that we would not normally condone simply because it is October 31st, okay? The day and the commercialized practice does not give us license to do things that otherwise would harm our consciences. Number two, second principle, how you behave and dress should reflect an attitude of godliness. Halloween is a day that is, aside from the candy and the witches and things like that, it is notorious for especially high school kids to get into trouble. Things that they would normally not do. Somehow on Halloween, all of a sudden, it's fun, perhaps because all of their friends are out, it's fun to basically vandalize. The teeping, the eggs, uh, just even just stealing candy. I reminded my kids, not that I think they needed the reminder, actually they probably did, that when, like we do, we leave out a bowl of candy because we're out trick-or-treating and says, please take one. I told them, I said, look, even if though your friends are taking a handful, it's stealing. It's no different than going to Safeway and stealing candy. 
They said you can have one. Just because they didn't verbally say it doesn't mean you can take more than one. That's probably the bottom of the barrel. There's a lot of, there's a lot of crime that happens on Halloween as well. My wife and I have found historically, since we've had kids, trick-or-treating is a great way to build relationships with our neighbors that we don't normally see. There's a few that we see all the time walking to and from school or at school, and we've built relationships with them. There's some that we've seen once or twice from a distance. And all of a sudden, they're opening a door. It's like, hey, your kids go to so-and-so school, and we chatted up and, you know, sometimes arrange play dates or whatever, and we build relationships within the community. I'm not saying you have to do that, but that is one way that we can take Halloween as we are to take everything, even Christmas, not just for ourselves, but to build relationships for the gospel. We have in the past, along with candy, you got to include candy, don't just give out tracts, but with the candy, we have given out tracts, which I'm sure all the little kids read right away. Look, I'm a realist, I get it, but hey, we did it, and we bought the cartoon ones, so that at least they flipped through it and said, hey, here's a little cartoon that I was given, right? So there's different things that you can do. And in terms of dressing and behaving with an attitude of godliness, we need to be careful with our costumes as well. Uh, early on in the beginning years of our church, uh, there was a, a couple in our church that graciously hosted a really fun uh, costume Halloween party uh, for the entire church. Our church was very small back then. And I remember driving to this first uh, party, and my wife was like, uh, I'm kind of not looking forward to these costumes. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, I've been to a lot of Christian church-sponsored Halloween costume parties, and it seems that it's always an excuse for some girls to dress very inappropriately that they would never dress, but because it's their costume, they do so. And I remember turning to her, I'm like, this is a small church. I know all the girls, you know all the girls, no one's going to do that. We walked in the party, and boy, was I wrong, okay? <laughs> So it's just, you know, it's my favorite anime character or whatever. Okay, well, you know, things that are too short on either end of the body, if you know what I mean. So just be careful with that as well, okay? Uh, number three, consider others, other Christians. Do not flaunt your Christian freedom and disregard the sensitivities of the weaker brother or sister. If someone is really has a problem with Halloween, you don't just purposely dress up and knock on their door, say, see, I'm a godly person, look at me. I mean, we, hey, let's be honest, we do that with alcohol, don't we? Oh, you're just immature. Christians can drink, look. I mean, we need to stop that nonsense, okay? Do not use your Christian freedom to cause others to stumble. And then number four, of course, don't throw biblical truth out the window. And this means including having a right view of how demons behave. Demons and evil do not infect people simply because you touch them or around someone who is dressed inappropriately, okay? Nor are demons just flying around, especially one night out of the year to wreak havoc, okay? I, as a kid, I was really into the gore of Halloween, and then when I started doing theater and knew where to buy realistic movie and theater fake blood that was edible, oh man, it was all over. I mean, it was all over me, 
right? No, it wasn't all over. I did it strategically for maximum grossness to make people nauseous. And I think I turned out okay. I wasn't infected by the evil and never be able to go to seminary or preach God's word, okay? I've said this before, often our view of demons is informed more by Hollywood than the scriptures. And I think the second greatest influence on many Christians thinking about demons are false teachers, right? The exorcisms and unbiblical treatment of demons and religions such as Catholicism or some branches of the charismatic church. When it comes to thinking biblically, we often uh, feel good because we avoid Halloween or we avoid the demonic or, or pagan artifacts or, or pagan places, and then we disregard the sin in our own lives because we make such a big deal about the public stuff, and sometimes we're even sinning in our attitude in addressing those public things, seeing that a lot recently in regards to COVID and, and uh, politics among Christians. After all, the devil is a liar and a deceiver. And ironically, thinking that he is only involved in things like Halloween diverts us from knowing the truth, that he is involved in Christian cults that use the Bible. He is involved in major world religions like Catholicism. And he is involved in your own worldly justification of sin and lack of commitment to God and his people. Okay? Question number four. In, in direct correlation with your messages on the power of prayer for the unbeliever, how do we pray for those who have evil tendencies that are consistent and affecting others at our workplace? I have prayed that God help and guide me on how to approach or communicate with this person. I think this is a great uh, question. I kind of edited it down because they included some details about their work um, that don't need to be public, uh, but I think we can all relate to this, okay? unbelieving coworker that's just causing trouble for us and other people. How do you as a Christian pray for this person? I'm gonna give you a list of ways to pray for this person and unlike most of my lists, this is going to be given to you in order of priority. So number one is the first and most important, okay? And so um, here's my list. You can fill in the gaps. And as I tell you that the first and foremost, the priority, number one, now you should pray all of these, but the first and priority is not their salvation. That's number two. The number one priority is to pray for your own holiness. That's backed by Scripture completely. We just read, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, Luke 11. By the way, nowhere in the Lord's Prayer, elsewhere in Scripture, okay, so hear me correctly, but nowhere in the Lord's Prayer are we told to pray for the salvation of others. All over the New Testament, but the Lord's Prayer prioritizes our worship and our own needs and our own holiness. So pray for your own holiness, specifically that you would not be drawn into whatever this individual is doing or drawn into sinful responses to this individual, even if it's accepted at your workplace, such as gossip or vengeance. Right? There's plenty of ways to get vengeance on coworkers that are acceptable in the workplace. Right? Not inviting them to lunch when everyone is going out, simply to hurt them. Uh, not giving them 
uh, work-related tasks that may help them move up in the, in the company, things like that, right? Now, you may do those things for good reason, for legitimate reasons. I'm saying don't do those out of spite and out of a way to hurt them and get revenge. If you don't want to invite them because they simply cause you to stumble and make everyone un uncomfortable, that's fine. Right, but don't just do it out of spite. Romans 12, 18 through 21, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So do good to this person. Galatians 6, 9 and 10. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. That's Galatians 6, 9 and 10. And then pray that you will use the trial to grow spiritually. This is still under praying for your own holiness. James 1, 2 through 4, we talked about that. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And then it explains how the trials grow us. The second thing to pray for is to pray for their salvation. Ultimately, they're not going to change in their heart unless they're saved. Uh, we saw this in 1 Timothy 2, which was alluded to in the question. Ultimately, this is their greatest need, and the fact that they are not a Christian is why they behave this way. Um, they need the Lord. Their morality is skewed. It's, very, it's probably very selfish. It's focused on self. They want to get ahead. They want to be comfortable. They want to get their job done. Okay, so pray for their salvation. Thirdly, pray for wisdom and boldness. James 1, 5 and 8. Five through eight. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Wind, for that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So pray for wisdom and boldness. In what? Pray for how to bring up the gospel with truth and firmness, but grace. Pray for wisdom on how to treat them with grace. Pray for wisdom on how to not respond sinfully, how to speak to them to help the workplace. Pray for wisdom and boldness. And then number four, pray for a solution to the situation. I think sometimes we think that we need to only focus on the spiritual and so it almost seems wrong uh, to pray for HR to do something, to pray for them to get fired. Those things, again, if your heart is right, are fine to pray for. Pray for a solution to the situation. Pray and ask the Lord if you are part of the solution or if you need to remove yourself, right? Our holiness and their salvation need to be a priority. Salvation, holiness, testimony. We are salt and light, Matthew chapter 5, in the same sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he also says, blessed are the peacemakers. Okay, so um, it's okay to get HR involved. It's okay to 
pray that they get moved to another department or they don't get the promotion because then everyone's life's going to be horrible if they're over them, things like that. That's fine. As long as, again, we're talking about order of priority, this is the last thing in priority to pray for. Um, so, uh, yeah, we don't want to offend, but we can't refuse to do what is legitimate and expected in our workplace. All right? So those are some basic principles. Question number five. Could you help me understand how we are to interpret and follow 1 Corinthians 11 regarding head coverings? Specifically, I wonder how to handle verses 5, 10, 13, and 15 regarding the requirements of a woman. Is her hair a sufficient covering or is even the hair to be covered? And if so, when? Let's read the whole passage because then we read the verses that they are specifically asking about, but we also get the context which explains how to wear a head covering uh, for women, especially in church. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 4 through 15. And I encourage you to click there or open your Bibles because as I answer this, I'm going to be referring to specific verses without reading them again because they're going to allow you to see the nuances and the specificities of what is happening here. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 4 through 15. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off of her head, or excuse me, to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, I'm going to touch on the verses that were asked about and give you general principles of what this means. If you want a fuller explanation of this, we do have archived on our website um, this passage, I believe it's three or four sermons uh, which this passage is covered. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, um, over double that, this is the exact passage our radio ministry is on right now, uh, Grace to the Bay. Um, but I would actually recommend you just listen to the whole sermons on uh, our website. But 
it is important to know that at this time and place, not just in the church, this was the culture. The head covering was a sign that a woman was married. In fact, for a woman to go out in public without a head covering was shameful to her husband to the degree that he could divorce her for this. So it's, it's similar to a modern wedding ring, but not really. Because if you go out without your wedding ring because it's getting cleaned or you just forgot it, that's not legal grounds for divorce. That's not legal grounds for being murdered, as it literally is in some countries today if they don't go out with a head covering, okay? But it's similar to wedding ring in that it is an outward symbol that you are spoken for, you are married, you are taken. Today, again, we don't really understand the severity of this, going out without a head covering, so maybe let me put it in perspective. So for a woman who was married to well, not wear a head covering was scandalous. It wasn't an issue if she just forgot. It was an issue of her saying, men, I'm available, even though she is married, okay? And much more than a wedding ring, you would notice if someone was wearing a head covering or not. It would be very, very obvious. obvious. So as a single man, you would never approach a woman with a head covering and speak to her romantically, ask her for a date. In some cultures today, you don't even speak to the women with head coverings. Even this is so grossly changed in our culture, right? Single men have no problem talking to women uh, with wedding rings on and vice versa, okay? She's spoken for, you were to, uh, to treat her as if she was single would be completely out of line. And what's more, for the woman to purposely dress without a head covering would be even more atrocious because she is purposely saying, I am disconnecting myself from my husband, I am available. And you have to understand, also back then, you don't have single women who are career women. They need to get married. They're looking to be married so that they don't starve to death, okay? And so all the more when just being single and getting married was a normal part of culture. There was not, oh, I'll wait. I'm going to pursue my career. I think I have the gift of singleness. It was just you had to do it because they couldn't provide for themselves, okay? So, again, people wear veils in the Middle East today for the same reasons. Now, when a woman was caught committing adultery, wearing a veil or not, the punishment, not in the church, but in the culture, was to shave her head. Back then, long hair, uh, valued by many women today in our culture, but way more valued. I think even if you have a short haircut, you would have a problem if your um, hairdresser, is trying to think of the words, not barber, your, your stylist shaved your head without asking. I think you'd be very bothered by that, right? Um, it's why even people lose their hair because of chemo, go out and buy wigs, right? Because it's, it's still a thing. And so even then, back then, it was a bigger deal, and so they would have their head shaved if they were caught in adultery. This was the legal punishment. This was also the practice for those who were caught 
in prostitution. So prostitutes would have their heads shaved, which probably served as a help for them so that the uh, unscrupulous men could find out who the prostitutes were. Uh, there was actually a third group of women who would have their heads shaved, and those were slaves. So with any or all of these, you can see why a free married woman would not want to have their head shaved and why Paul says for you to go out with your head uncovered is just as scandalous as saying uh, you were caught in adultery. Okay? In our culture, it is not a sign of marriage. And so the actual head covering does not matter. The key here is that this is ultimately an issue of modesty and submission as we see in verses 3 and 10. The therefore of verse 10 connects us to the issue of roles in marriage. So it's not just head covering. It is connected to the roles of the husband and specifically the wife, uh, the same one we'll see in the coming weeks in 1 Timothy. So, the head covering was an external marker of respect for her husband, that she belongs to her husband, and as we saw, her husband belongs to her. It was a sign of marriage. As far as verse 15 is concerned, that was also cultural. Long hair on a man was a symbol, a sign that they were a homosexual. That is not the case today. In the ancient Corinthians culture, a man, a man growing his hair long would convey sexual ambiguity and possible moral perversion. So we see what he's talking about there. And we see again that ultimately the issue is not long hair for the man. The issue is a blurred distinction between what is a man and what is a woman. And since a head covering was an honor for woman then the long hair would accentuate that honor. And that's what it's talking about there for the woman's hair. Ultimately, all of this involved external cultural markers that indicated an internal recognition of the proper roles between men and women, especially husband and wife. So when you understand that, we understand that in our culture, because Paul's using something from the culture, not the church. In our culture, there are many similar things. I've already said maybe the wedding ring, uh, but you know, there are people who's like, well, we, we're on a budget. We didn't buy wedding rings, and that's fine. That, it's not scandalous to do that. But how you behave, how you talk to single men, or how you talk to single women if you are married, things like that. These are uh, all the same thing. How you talk about your husband how you treat him at home. Those, this is all involved in what we're talking about here. Okay? And as you re, if you recall from 1 Corinthians, Paul was just answering a lot of questions that the Corinthians had set, sent him. And so most likely someone had asked specifically about this and that's why he's explaining this. Okay? Um, that's all the questions I got. Um, I want to take a couple minutes uh, to share something because there's really no appropriate to place to put this in a normal sermon. I want to clarify something that I've said quite often in the past uh, and have, be, have since realized that it is not entirely true. You have heard me preach or talk about forgiveness. Uh, 
And we have that phrase, forgive and forget. And I almost always half-jokingly say, well, obviously it's impossible to forget unless you get amnesia or you get knocked on the head. And the thing I try to say is you can forgive and still remember like, well, this person did this to me, but I've totally forgiven them. With that principle in mind, I actually believe that it's possible to forget the wrongs done against you. And let me explain why. Is because we forget things all the time and people have to remind us what they're talking about and you're like, oh yeah, you told me you did that. Because of the nature of my meetings with people, people tend to tell me a lot of things they have done in the past. These are grave and gross sins. Some of them have hurt people. Some of them have ruined their marriages. Some of them have estranged their children. Okay? Everything from adultery to attempted murder in this room. But God. Right? Then they got saved. And it's such a big deal to them that someday we'll be in a conversation and they'll reference it without giving any explanation and I have no idea what they're talking about. And I have to think through and they'll literally say like, yeah, remember when I told you when I was, had that former life and I, I stabbed the other gang member and he was in a coma. I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. It's not that I don't care about those people. It's that I don't care about their past sins. Now, if you still remember how you were wrong, does that mean that you haven't forgiven? No. You could have still fully forgiven. But sometimes we remember because we dwell on it. In our minds, they are now categorized as that. So much so that in our subconscious, it's, oh, the single female who's Asian with glasses who did this to me in our minds. And in our minds, we just think that's the person. That's the person who had the gall to treat me like that, to say that about my kids or whatever. And of course, you're not going to forget because that's who they are in your minds now. So I'm not saying to truly forgive, you have to forget. I'm just saying that I don't think it's completely true what I've said many times that you can't forget because I think you can. Not forget in that when people remind you, you're still like, no, I really don't know who you are. But that they have to jog your memory because it's just you've forgiven and have wiped the slate clean. Okay? Now that's not to say that there aren't good reasons to remember. Right? If someone is dangerous, you need to remember that they're dangerous. Not that they're now safe, but you just want to insist that they're dangerous. But if they're truly dangerous, that you want to avoid them. We want to look back at our, the way people have hurt us and the Lord used that to put us in a trial so that we can grow and learn to grow to forgive and things like that. So there's legitimate, legitimate reasons to remember, but I, I think you get what I'm saying. I think it is possible to forgive and forget it's just not commanded because it may not be actually possible all the time or for every person, okay? 
feel free to continue submitting your questions. We'll get to it uh, in a couple months from now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, the desire of your people that you've given them to learn more about you, but also to learn how to take what they know about you to live out practically, whether it's uh, a, a troublemaking coworker or whether it's confusion about cultural markers in the scriptures uh, or even desiring to honor uh, a, a Sunday of rest. I thank you so much for the clarity of your word and I pray that you continue to help us to seek your word for the answers of life and the answers about who you are and how we are to respond to that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand as we close.